0: Welcome to Highlawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We're so glad you're here. For more information, visit us online at Church.org. For 2023, we're embarking on the year of our Lord, a user's guide to and through the scriptures. So grab your Bible and join us as we journey through the Bible. The Old Testament wisdom literature covers the bulk of the poetic books. It starts with the book of Job and goes to the Song of Solomon. They're so-called because of all the things, including what we find in the book of the Psalms, there is a lot of poetry in there, yes. In fact, it's almost all poetry. However, there is also poetry with a purpose, and that purpose is an understanding of God, the development of an understanding of who God is, of the nature of God, and of this present existence. As Solomon himself would write in the first part of the book of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The book of Job is the first one in this rank, and it covers, it's also thought to be the oldest book of the Bible. Although when I tried to look that up for a fact, I thought I saw very quickly that scholarly consensus Is just not a consensus right now. Incidentally, I don't care if it's theology, I don't care if it's education, I don't care if it's psychology, I don't care what it is. If you hear the phrase, or if you see on paper the phrase, the scholarly consensus is, and yet there isn't a footnote, and there isn't a study to back it up, or there isn't a survey that verifies that, Chances are good that that is, uh, that is an empty promise that somebody has thrown in without scholarly backing just to say that they believe that they have the majority opinion. And as we know in matters of religion, majority opinion does not always have the last word. Anyway, before we get into the contents of the book itself, let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity, Lord. And in spite, uh, in spite of calamity in spite of uh, danger, in spite of all grievances that, that come to us. Lord, we thank you for being a God of laughter, a God of joy, and a God of peace. So may your peace settle within our hearts and may our minds be open to your word and may the same Holy Spirit that inspired, that breathed these passages now bring them to light for us and explain them to us as we dedicate these this time and ourselves into your hands without reservation. In the name of Christ, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen. So the setting of the book of Job is in the land of Uz or Uz, depending upon what side of the English language that you're on. Uz is thought to be in the area of the Arameans today, or the area of the Arameans in the time of the kings. It's around Damascus. There are other, uh, there actually is... Uh, competing interests on this as well. There are some that say that it became what is now known as Moab. But the setting in, in terms of what historical area is uncertain. And we believe that the author, whoever it put pen to paper, and we also believe that through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, naturally, that, they, that this was intentional. That the setting, the politics, even the time period was not what was important, but the content and the theme of the story was. And that theme is the $40 word, theodicy. Theodicy is a part, a branch of theology that seeks to answer the question, why is there pain? If God is a loving God, why does He allow suffering? And everybody has a different aspect to that. But the reason that this is a foundational work in the Bible in any way, shape, or form is because it seeks to get the reader to understand their place in God's kingdom, their place in God's world, to seek an understanding of what is pain, what is suffering. The genre, if you want to put it that way, the, the actual literature genre, is narrative poetry in an epic fashion. It is essentially a novel written in verse. basic outline of the book has four sections. begins with the prologue where we get the background from God's perspective. Satan's challenge of God, incidentally the word satan, Hebrew for the accuser. So in this setting, the heavenly court is gathered around God and the satan, the Satan, the enemy, Lucifer, whatever you want to call him, approaches the throne and basically gives the, uh, the analysis that humanity is flawed, fickle, feeble, finite, and most of all frustrating, that we are full of sin and irredeemable, Utterly to which God says, have you considered my servant Job? God himself from his own throne describes Job as righteous, which is very interesting. Not that he is necessarily perfect, but he has won not only the esteem of the people that know him, but the esteem of the heavenly court as well. Apparently he was a a covenant keeper before the covenant was a thing. But going on, that gives you a little bit of his background, the wealth he accumulated, and the testing that, that Satan does on him through his, the grief that he has inflicted. Uh, there is a section of earthly dialogues between... Well, first, Job gives a declaration of his own innocence. He pours out his heart in grief. And then three so-called friends see him from an earthly perspective... And they mourn with him, but they try to do what friends should never do. They try to fix him instead of listening to him. And he picks up on this and actually complains about this. You're not listening to me. Elphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shulite, and Zophar the Nemanite. And then there is a guy that is jokingly referred to by many uh, commentarians as the lawyer, the younger gentleman, Elihu the Bozite. Incidentally, Elihu being the only Hebrew name in the lot of them. Uz is a land outside of Israel, and even Job himself, all of the gentlemen listed here, are not Jews. Their names, with the exception of Elihu, of, uh, Elihu are not Jewish, which gives credence to the, to the belief that this book predates even Torah. So after Elihu, excuse me, after Elihu has the last say, then God intervenes, has his dialogue with Job in verses excuse me in chapters 38 through 41 and there is the epilogue where god restores job in his earthly position so the theodicy which i brought up earlier theodicy basically seeks to answer four basic questions what is justice what is the difference between right and wrong who regulates the difference between right and wrong secondly is god himself just in his dealings, in his judgment, in all of his activities. As a sovereign God, you would think that justice would be met out against someone who is sinful almost immediately upon the recognition of that sin. But that's, again, a human perspective. Is God just? Number three, does God strictly adhere to justice? By strict adherence, grace would mean that God does not strictly adhere to justice. Mercy would dictate that God does not strictly adhere to justice. That God himself patience would mean that he doesn't strictly adhere to justice. And as God himself is overseeing, he who understands both the heart and who sees, hears, and knows all, and there's strict adherence, one would say that the second that someone sins, that sin is met by justice. So these questions are answerable in a human perspective, true, but they would all be wrong. That's where Job comes in, the understanding of living in a fallen world. So why do the just, the big question, the one that Job himself is struggling with in this book, why do the just, again, from a human perspective, experience pain? Now, in these next few sessions, I want to give you this definition by what I mean when I say pain and what I mean when I say suffering. Pain is an inevitable component of the human condition It is something that accompanies us in this life. It is a curse of our fallenness. When I mention suffering, I know that for a lot of people, suffering just simply means long-term pain or an excruciating amount of pain held for a long period of time. In this theological end of things, though, when I mention suffering, what I refer to is more of an attitude, more of a personal perspective. When I think of suffering in this light, what I'm referring to is a personal surrender to the pain, a sense of defeat. We all know people who have had debilitating diseases, who live in in what we would consider excruciating pain, and yet they have not given up. So by a theological definition, we cannot say that they are suffering in that sense, even though they are indeed in great pain. So pain being a condition... Suffering being more of an attitude or or a a choice outlook, if you will. We also consider in this book the humanistic philosophy of universal justice. Now, what do I mean by that? In the karmic end of things, a virtuous person reaps the benefit of a good life. An evil or unvirtuous person reaps a troubled life. Now, this is basically, again, a very far eastern philosophy known as karma which is an unbiblical understanding of human ethics. Matthew 5.45, Romans 1.7, Romans 3.10-12, through 12, especially Romans 8.28, 8, where God tells us through the pen of Paul that we know that God uses and God works in all things for His glory and for the good of those who He loves and those who are called to His purpose. Even though we can't understand it because we're only looking at it from a very narrow, present perspective, God is still at work. And I want you to hold those verses in regard when we continue talking about this. There's also a prophetic resolve that I want to bring to your attention in this specific book that might actually be the reason why this book was constructed. In Job 19, 23-27, Job cries out, Oh, that my words were recorded! that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end He will stand on the earth. Mark that down because in the earliest, what we kind of believe, tend to believe is the earliest book in the Bible, there is a view of what we see in Revelation. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, yet in my flesh, after I have wrought, after I have died, after I have breathed my last in this body, yet in my flesh, this is resurrection in the earliest book of the Bible, yet in my flesh I will see God. An extremely Old Testament statement of a New Testament reality. I myself will see him. With my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. This is when he's on the ash heap. This is why he is in the midst of grieving over his position, over his reputation, over his understanding of his own self-worth, and even worse, over his grief at the loss of his children. Let's start with chapters 1 and 2. We see the throne room of the universe The author gives us, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a a glimpse of the court of God, the, the royal court, if you will. Satan, the accuser, the prosecuting attorney, so to speak, delivers his condemnation of humanity, that we are not only flawed, but we are without hope. And yet, God asks him to consider this person, and he, from the throne, refers to him as what? As righteous. Now Satan, again the accuser, says that the only reason that he loves you is because you've made him rich. And, and he keeps doing this. He keeps laying before God, if you if were to take his wealth away, if you were to take his family away, if you were to take, eventually, his health away, if you were to take everything from him, the only reason that he loves you is because you have been bribing that love from him. So Satan's accusation is that Job's love for him is predicated on a condition. Now we've talked about that idea in Greek wording terms that fed into our scriptures that agape is a godly love. It is a non-conditional self-sacrificing love. That is the love that God tries to inspire in us. And yet what the accuser of the brethren is saying here is that this person that God is considering as righteous is not because he does not have that kind of love for him. So through the test, Satan is permitted to take everything away from him except his life. So Job's mettle here is being tested through the tragedies that follow. The word Job is from a Near Eastern origin, but it's kind of murky. According to the commentaries that are in your notes that I referenced, his name means to be hated in the sense that he is being persecuted. Again, the word Job, from an uncertain deviation, is thought to mean hated in the sense of being persecuted. He was a wealthy and an unlikely combination. He was both a wealthy and a pious God-worshipper. And if it holds true that the setting of this story happens before the time of of the Exodus event, uh, that should really tell you something, because this is before the covenant came into effect. In, in fact, remember, he is not in Israel. He is in Aram Panah. So that's another thing that gives credence to an earlier writing date, or at least an earlier setting. He comes from and has an extremely large family. He has prosperous estates. He has loads of livestock and money to his name. He gives sacrifices frequently. In fact, just to make sure that his children are right with God, if they have been out throwing a party for themselves. He makes additional sacrifices on their behalf to ensure that if they had sinned, they are covered. And so Satan attacks him with a three-pronged attack. He removes all vestiges of Job's wealth. He kills all of Job's children. He eventually attacks Job's very health, bringing him close to death. And in boils, in sackcloth, sitting on a pile of ashes, Job is in utter total grief. He shaves his head, he curses the day of his birth, and his wife goes so far as to say, there is no hope for you, just curse God and die. Wow! What advice. So here we also see, before we continue on with the narrative a little bit, here we see some insights about the enemy, about Satan. Uh, first of all, he is under God's restraints. While his designs are wholly against God and the people of God, in fact, he is known as the accuser of the brethren, us. In other words, he has, we are both the pawn and the prize of this argument. He is nevertheless not able to do anything that God does not... He's not able to do anything that God blocks him from doing. And also, we see here that nothing is kept secret from God. No design of the enemy is kept secret from God. Nothing that we do, say, and or think is kept secret from God. All of it is an open book before him who sees both the heart and through space and time. Satan is the author of all evils upon the earth. In fact, he is the first murderer. As we stated earlier, he might not have plunged a knife into Adam and Eve, but he's the reason they're dead and every human being that has ever passed away since that point in time, they can all be linked to him. He's the author of all evils upon the earth, but he is also very limited. He is neither omnipresent nor omniscient. He has locality. He has a specific point always, and he is not all-knowing. Only God has that. So unlike all of the rest of the near and far eastern uh religions, one of the things that stands out about God is that he has no equal. He has no rival. Only God is omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. Satan is not. Satan is not an equal to God. Never has been, never will be. He himself is a creation and a lesser life form. So in his grief, the section of the dialogues begins with Job pouring out his heart before God. Job declares himself innocent of sin. He he, he throws down this accusation that his pain cannot be a divine punishment unless God himself is unjust or that God does not reign through justice. He's seeking to understand. He's wrestling with this thing. And he's pouring his heart out with some very elegant and very worthwhile poetry. Then the first of his friends comes by Eliphaz the Temanite. His name literally translates to, we believe that is, again, this is a very ancient origin name, to whom God is strength. His, If you read through his arguments, they're based mostly on, on humanistic piety, on outward works and on ob- and personal observation, empiricism. He also claims that he had an encounter with an angelic being in uh, chapters 4, verses 12 through 21, please write that down. Who might this angelic being have been? No one that we would consider an angel, I assure you, because angels typically don't buy, lie about the God they serve, but let's go on. His base assumption is that Job's pain is due to some unconfessed sin. His recommendation to Job, quite frankly, is to confess yourself and appeal to God's mercy. Job's very blunt response, very eloquently stated, is, you're not listening. You're dumping all these vain philosophies on me, but you simply don't listen to my case. And his prayer before God at the conclusion of this poetic cycle is, who am I that you should ever have considered me? But because you have considered me a friend, remember me in the hour of my grief. The next friend to come up to present an argument is listed as Bildad the Shuhite, (laughs) whose name translates to the son of of contention. Isn't that the truth? His philosophy is is essential justice. God's justice is absolute. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, immediate repercussions. His assumption is that Job is a hypocrite. And that for a good chunk of his life, he has been living in some kind of hypocrisy that has been now meted out by God's wrath. His recommendation is, of course, to confess your sin before God. Now, the three friends represent three different schools of Near Eastern philosophy, all of which that basically uh, run along the same road, but with different, different terminology. Confess your sin before God, throw yourself upon the mercy of our Heavenly Father. And Job's response is, God's wisdom is beyond my ability to argue. But he prays at the same time, just let me know what have I done to deserve this. So far, the Namanite, whose name means impudent, incidentally, his philosophy is effectively a blind faith that God and his ways are completely unknowable. Yet he makes this this basic assumption that While I think that God is unknowable, you clearly don't understand anything about him. So his recommendation is God's devotion to God is rewarded. Again, devotion from an earthly perspective, the showiness. Job's response is, even though I am blameless. Again, you're not listening. Even though I am blameless before God, I have done nothing wrong in the sight of God. God has yet made me a laughingstock. And he prays, have mercy, and I will take my case to you relent this is scary this is horrible i am in grave pain but please spare me long enough to plead my case in prayer then this young guy who's apparently been standing around the ash heap during all this time who declares himself to be younger than the rest of them and he says i've been hearing you all i've been listening patiently but yet i i don't think that any of you know anything so now i'm going to get my turn Elihu the buzzite incidentally, or Buzite. Again, this is the only Hebrew name of the quartet. His name kind of dissects down to whose God is he? His philosophy seems to be based on karmic justice. If you are good, you will have a good life. If you are evil, you will have an evil life. But he makes this rather unique recommendation, and it does hit close to home, When God enters the dialogue later on, pain may act as a teacher, and Job is wrong to ask God why. Now, part of that is a truth, and part of that is dangerous. The truth of the matter is that, yes, God can use pain in teaching us something, in sharpening us, in strengthening our resolve as either warning or another means to an end, which is simply outside of our ability to see it at the time. But then he goes on to say, and this varies depending upon your translation, you can get as you read through his poetry either that it's wrong to ask God why, or it's wrong to accuse God. And I'll talk about that in just a little bit later on. But Job does not get the chance to respond, nor does he get the opportunity to pray about what has been said, Because the second that Elihu finishes his very, very, very long dialogue, which is the longest in the book, God decides that at that moment in time, he's going to offer his response. So to kind of sum up the earthly argument, if you will, Job argues that he is innocent and that he's been faithful and that the pain he's enduring is not just The pain that he's enduring cannot be divine punishment. And if it is, he demands a court hearing. And either God does not enforce true justice, or God is not just. Here we see that that Job is actively accusing God. And he goes so far as to, let me lay my case before you. He's demanding a trial. The friend's perspective, his accusers rather, is that God is just, But God enforces justice in all situations and that Job, as a result, must be guilty of something. And by the time you get all through this, the reader's inference is more often than not that all human wisdom, in this instance, is vain and that nothing's coming close to touching what's at the core of this. So we get to the divine dialogue. God answers Job's question with questions. Do you have, in in very brief, in, in summation, Do you have God's wisdom? Do you have God's power? Do you have his his experience? Were you there when the foundations of the world were laid? Do you have God's sovereignty? Can you see everything all at once, all the time, hear every voice, read every thought? Can you see past, present, and future simultaneously? Do you truly understand what real justice is from God's perspective? And he goes into some truths about his own nature. Number one, he declares that the world, in a roundabout way, that the world is fallen, and that is fallen through sin. And that the universe, through space and time, the universe is complex and that we cannot see every repercussion of every action, every thought, or every word the way that he can. And under the assurance that only God, only he himself is truly sovereign. So humanity's perspective, God, or in this instance, Job's perspective of reality is simply this. He's limited by his own finite lifetime. God is preexistent. Job's entire lifespan is a blink of an eye in comparison to God. And he's limited by what he's able to see, what he's been able to smell, what he's been able to touch, what he's been able to taste, what he's been able to hear. God is not limited by any factor. Job is limited by an incomplete understanding of the way the universe works, the way that time works, the way that humanity works, whereas God invented it so he knows it all intimately. Not to mention the spiritual warfare that's going on around us that we're feeling the echoes of, we're feeling the the reverberations of. Humanity is not capable of fully understanding the events or the nature of reality under those very limited circumstances. And yet... God has still given us a compensating mechanism. Now, I alluded to this in, in this past week's sermon that we can't see past, present, and future all at the same time. We can't know all of the inner workings of the divine nature. But I believe that that's where faith comes in, where trust in God comes in. If you wanted to think about it this way, God takes Job on a whirlwind adventure to the point that he even shows him two dinosaurs. There's this one he calls the behemoth that has a tail larger than cedar trees, and that's not a hippopotamus. There's this other one, the leviathan, that stretches this giant span. It's a sea creature. Can you make them? Can you tame them? Can you capture them and drag them forth? Effectively, you can't do all these things, but I can, and I love you. Have faith. Trust in God. So Job repents of accusing God. And I want you to note this because I think that we have been uh, at least popularly mistaught about something. It's often stated in times of grief by people who have been discipled in a certain way that you should never question God. Let me preface this. Never disrespect God. Never disrespect God. But if you seek God's understanding, if you seek to know God's will, if you seek to better understand God's truth, if you seek through obedience to be a disciple of Christ, that God rewards. There is nowhere in Scripture that denies you the ability of, in prayer, asking God why. It's when we wag our fingers in the face of God. That's gross disrespect. But asking God, let me see your wisdom. Bring light to the darkness of this hour. The book of Psalms is loaded. If I remember correctly, three quarters of the Psalms basically boils down to David asking God, why? Yet through all things will I love you. So in this case, Job repents of his accusation of being the wagging finger. And he grows to accept that some things are outside of his understanding and his control. And that's a hard order for any human being, but it's one that we as humans who are disciples of Christ must get in our heads. And God honors Job's repentance and his struggle for understanding, not to mention that he honors, and write this down, he honors Job's honesty in prayer. It's one of the reasons that the, these historical, excuse me, that these poetical books, the books of wisdom literature, are so precious. Because a lot of them are meditative ways that the author was seeking to understand God as they're pouring their hearts out before him. David especially did not sugarcoat anything that was going on in his heart. But he laid his heart plain before God. So did Job here. So God honors Job's honesty in prayer. Then God addresses his quote-unquote friends. He confronts them for assuming that they had a full knowledge of God, of the divine nature, and that their understanding, incomplete and flawed as it was, was also way too narrow. They were putting God in a box and way too rigid. Lastly, as we conclude the book, Job is financially and politically restored. He is given twice everything that he lost, But as it draws to a close, the book doesn't outright say this. But I want you to remember it and bear it in mind as you contemplate the book. Even though Job has more children on the way, does he ever quit grieving or missing the children that he so tragically lost? The children who had died. Wealth can be replaced. Things can be replaced. Human souls... Human fellowship cannot. So, as we draw to a close, as always, I'd like for you to share your reading and your journal insights, but consider the following along from our conversations. In our daily life, do we tend to oversimplify God? Are there instances that you can think of when we tend to oversimplify God? Do we question God when, if, if we do get on our hands and knees before God? When troublesome times appear, when we pour our heart out to God, have there been times when we go to God for knowledge? Have there been times when we go to Him with an accusing heart as well? Something that we need to consider. We need to look at our motivations. We need to look at our condition, our emotions. We need to make sure that when we approach God, it is for the proper reasons and that we don't go with a hardened heart before He who loves us. Lastly, are we just as strong in our faith in the good times as we are the bad? Are we just as strong in faith in the good times as well as in the bad? It rains both upon the just and the unjust. Are we a fair-weather believer? So, anything else before we dismiss? The The comment was made that in a way God did restore Job to his children when uh, Job met his death that they would have been reunited. Uh, David basically said something very similar when his son through Bathsheba had died. If you'll remember... Uh, he was very penitent before God during that time because he knew the death was coming, and yet he was trying his best to to humble himself, to physically agonize himself so that God might have mercy upon the child. But when the child died after after the prophecy was was handed out, was lived out. Excuse me. Um, he he ceased to fast almost immediately. He washed himself and went on because as he reported to his soldiers, I know I will see him face to face. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Do we have that kind of strength? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to meet together, and we thank you for the hope that you give us, that while we are unable to see everything from your perspective, we pray, Lord, that you grant us the gift of your faith to hold ourselves together through all of the challenges that are to come. That we do seek you not with an accusing finger, Lord, but we seek your understanding and your guidance. We seek your wisdom and your will. We seek your strength and your peace of mind, which passes all understanding. So as we study more into your word, help us to gain the maturity to meet all life circumstances with your resolve, to live always in your promises and to know that everything that happens, Lord, you are working within and that you as will hold us in the palm of your hand. Go with these, my brothers and sisters, and may your word continue to harbor itself well within their hearts so that when the day comes, as, as a warrior with a sword and shield, we are prepared, we are ready, and we are strong. Help us to take the stand that you would have us to take. And may we, in all that we do, bring glory to your name. And it's in the matchless name of Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us at High Lawn Baptist Church. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. At High Lawn, we believe that when you love God, you share his word. When you love others, you spread the gospel. We would love for you to join us next time, and if possible, to join us in person. To contact or learn more about us, to donate to our ongoing ministry, or most importantly, to learn about the salvation offered to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, visit us at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Once again, thank you, and God bless you.